getting real fidgety. We need some distractions. Who am I? I'm a human too. I'm just like you with ASD. Who am I? I'm a human too. I'm just like you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first podcast of Autism Stories presented by Autism Personal Coach. My name is Doug Bletcher, and I am your host for the podcast. I've had the privilege and opportunity to work with people with autism for the last 17 years, which basically means I'm getting old. Uh, Learning from people with autism and their families is my passion and life's work. In addition to my life's work, I am just a huge fan of podcasts. Probably isn't a day that goes by that I'm not listening to one podcast. I've thought about for many years about starting my own podcast, and now it's finally here. Through my travels, I've met some amazing people who are doing great things to support people with autism. I know about these people, but so many others don't know who they are, and I want to give the opportunity for all of you listening to this podcast to learn about them and how they may be able to help you or someone you love. So in each podcast of Autism Stories, I will talk with one amazing person in the autism community, and in this first episode, I'm going to talk with one of the best people I know, Amanda Tip Kemper. Amanda is the Autism Services Manager at the Children's Home of Cincinnati. She earned her bachelor's in psychology from the University of Cincinnati and her master's degree in special education from Xavier University. And most recently, she completed requirements for her principal licensure through the state of Ohio. She has served the autism community in too many roles to mention since 2004, but I'll just discuss a few of them. She was the executive director of the Cincinnati Center for Autism from 2005 to 2011 before moving on to her current role as the autism services manager at the Children's Home of Cincinnati. Amanda has also served as a board member for the Autism Society of Greater Cincinnati, in which she chaired the Advocacy Committee. She was the facilitator of the Autism Society of Greater Cincinnati, Adults with Autism Support Group, and also ran community outings for this group. Amanda's experience ranges from working directly with children and adults on the spectrum, on individualized goals, to collaborating with professionals to improve the quality of service provided to individuals across environments. She has acted as a behavior therapist to children, advocate to families, education specialist overseeing programs and IEPs, and coach and mentor to staff and professionals in the field. Her professional goals is to gather and expand and connect the resources that will support the development of a continuum of effective services and support to individuals on the autism spectrum. Amanda, so what's so funny about 
this podcast, as you know, for years that I have wanted to do a podcast, and we... We tried. Uh, we tried that one time with John Pack. <laughs> Shout out to you, John Pack. We love you. Um, and it did not go... I don't think it went too well. I don't think my performance was the greatest. That was the problem. <laughs> you were the one who were like, nope. <laughs> I did not like my performance. Oh, self-critical to the and end. John and I were like, sounded great, and yeah. you were like, nope. So, interviewing you, I think, will go a lot better. Okay. So We'll see. We will see. <laughs> so, I kind of wanted to start out by just talking about your introduction to the autism community. Um, I, I've heard the story, but I don't think too many other people have, and it had something to do with architecture. Yeah, well, I mean, I started out in architecture for almost three years. So I went to the University of Cincinnati, the design, art, architecture, and planning program, and that did not go well. <laughs> <laughs> Why um, do you say that? Well, you know, I entered architecture when everything was moving um, into AutoCAD, and I fell in love with architecture when everything was still, like, drafted and hand-drawn and and really, architecture, the whole purpose of me going into it was that my parents wanted me to use my artistic talent in a practical way. So I went into architecture because I was like, this is practical. But can you imagine me? Can you imagine me in a cubicle? No, all definitely day? not. That is not Amanda. <laughs> all day, every day, just drawing quietly, quietly drawing no. <laughs> what people tell me to draw. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> no, yeah. So anyway, I dropped out of architecture um, in my third year, and um, I had no idea at all what I was going to do, so I went into psychology, because in the degree of psychology, as you know, you have you know, the benefit of all these options, yeah. and you also have the drawback of all these options. Yeah, what so, am I going to do now? Right. <laughs> um, and then my sixth year in my undergrad, because the architecture program was going to last six years. So I ended up graduating on time, quote unquote, with the kids in the architecture class with my psychology degree, but I was um, pregnant my whole entire senior year. So um, I ended up having Alexis in January, then having to go back to finish credits, and then she was in the audience when I graduated in June of 2002. Yes. So, and then I was a stay-at-home mom. That's what people don't know about me. I was a stay-at-home mom for two and a half years before I started working at Cincinnati Center for Autism. So how did, that, how did you start working at the Cincinnati Center for Autism? So that's the part of the story that is not that exciting. So, I mean, everybody, there's a lot of people out there that have like a personal connection and that's how they get into the field of special education. And I, yeah. and I figured it out over the years, like I do have a lot of... I have a lot of personal connections and what got me there. But initially what happened is that when I was in a field of psychology, I was in an abnormal psychology class, which you talk about a minefield now, talking about autism being in an abnormal psychology class. That's a total minefield yeah, now, yeah. right? But back then it wasn't. And um, they showed a video of a group of kids that were in a research project in California. And they were getting intensive intervention. And it was funded by a grant. And it followed these kids for, um, I think it was about four years, and then the grant funding was withdrawn, and it then followed up on these kids afterwards, and half of the kids regressed, like, significantly. And I was so upset. I was just really um, appalled that if you could give someone the chance at, you know, a happy, fulfilling life, why would you stop 
why would you stop? You know, so I was just really appalled. And that's what got me interested in autism because it was very different from a lot of other intellectual disabilities in that you can make progress. There's not the same kind of ceiling Mm -hmm. or just limit that other disabilities have to deal with, right? It's just a completely different field. And also one that there was so little information about that I was like, I can learn for the rest of my life in this field. You know, there's no limit to what I'm going to learn. And that has been a very true story. So anyway, fast forward, I'm a stay-at-home mom. And um, I wanted to get back to work. And I started looking for families that were looking for behavior therapists. And I started going back to UC and pulling, you know, the... Um, yep, off the psych board. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, pulling the little tabs, the little phone number tabs off yeah. and calling people up. And I went... Yeah. I went for, I think, um, three or four different interviews, and the times just wouldn't work out. Like, they were looking for very specific times, and it wasn't going to work for my schedule. And then my mom found um, a article in the Cincinnati Inquirer that was talking about this new place that was opening called Cincinnati Center for Autism. And they had opened in October of 2003, and she had given me the information, and um, I started calling. I started calling like a crazy person because they never answered the phone. And I remember one day I called like five times in a row and this girl finally answers and she's like, she was exasperated because I had called so much. And I was like, I'm, you know, I'm interested in working there. And she was like, you know, I was working with a kid. Now I know like when the beginning days of CCA, like you're the plumber, you're the HR person, you know, you're the parking attendant, you're the director and you're the behavior therapist all at once. Right. So the lady who had answered the phone was the director at the time. And I I told her, I was like, I will answer your phones. I will sweep your floors. I will clean your windows. Just give me a shot. I don't have any experience, but I feel like, I feel like this is my calling. Right? And so she interviewed me and I started there as a behavior therapist in like April of 2004 and here we are now. Off to the races. Off to the races. So it's not a very glamorous story though. Do you think it is? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I see a lot of parallels between your story and my story. I think it, I always say it found me. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the other thing though, to back up even farther, my mom was a special ed teacher. Right. So, you know, years into working in the field of autism, I had this like aha moment where I was like, oh, right, right. So both my parents were teachers, you know, and one of the reasons I went into architecture is because they told my sister and I, no matter what you do, do not go into music and do not go into education, right? <laughs> my sister's a teacher right. who still plays the trumpet and I am a principal that sings in a rock and roll band. <laughs> <laughs> so we totally rejected our parents' advice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the other thing that I think has given me a lot of, um, I don't know, empathy maybe. Um, I was in an IEP. Do you know that? You know that I was an IEP. Did you know that? Yes, I did okay. know that, yes. So I was on an IEP. This is back in the days when it was on triplicate. So there are like three layers. And um, at that time, I think um, the ETR at the time said that I was in the 10th percent for articulation. Hmm. So like nobody could understand me. I couldn't hear for a really long time because I had to have my adenoids removed. They had been blocking my eustachian tubes and I couldn't talk very well. I wasn't understood. And I remember like in my early childhood having a lot of meltdowns. I 
would cry. I was a huge baby. It took me a really long time to work on my temper, actually. Like, it took me years, like, through high school to really get to the, the place where my fuse was a little bit longer. And I still work on that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I look back on my life and now I'm like, oh, like, all these pieces kind of come together, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and you look back on things. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's why I'm doing this. It all makes sense now. <laughs> It all makes sense. Yeah, when you, when you look back mm -hmm. on things. It just took a while for me to figure it out. But no, it wasn't like a, a straight shot. I know people that, you know, they volunteered with Special Olympics when they were in high school. And, you know, they knew exactly what they were going to do. And that was not me. That was not me. But I think that also is beneficial to me because when I'm working with kids with special needs and kids with autism and they don't know what they want to do, I'm like, that's okay. You yeah. know, that's okay. Yeah. And it's not this, like, you got to figure it out, kid. You yeah. know? So, You'll find your path. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure we'll get back to that at oh, some point in our conversation. We, I'm sure we will. <laughs> so we could probably talk about a million different topics, and this could be a, an eight to ten hour uh, podcast. I thought but, it was good. Yeah, but for, for the purpose of shortening it a bit. Brevity? Yeah. Bre brevity. <laughs> there, there we go. That's the word I was Being looking for. Being more succinct? Yes. <laughs> Let's let's kind of focus on employment because I know you do a lot of that with your current um, current position. Mm -hmm. So before we get employed, there's obviously pre-employment skills. Mm -hmm. So wh why don't we? Why don't you talk a little bit about like some of the pre-employment skills you feel like are some of the most important ones? Oh my gosh, that's a really big question. Yeah. You know that. I, I read a research article, and I'm not going to be able to cite anything, just so you know, so you're mm -hmm. going to have to do your homework and go back and cite it all, all right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I read a research article, and they were talking about the skills that were being taught versus the skills that were needed in a workplace, and that really was very enlightening to me, because the skills that were being taught were um, like the social niceties, so you know, being able to greet, um, you know, asking how are you saying thank you, saying please, you know, being polite, yeah. which, yeah, are, those are nice things. But what the research was demonstrating was that these kids who were very polite and saying all the right things were also not able to ask for help. They weren't able to ask someone to repeat the directions. Mm -hmm. They weren't able to advocate and say, I don't understand. I need a break. I'm overwhelmed. And that's really what we've done in our program is focus on teaching kids how to be self-aware, how to self-regulate, and then how to self-advocate. Mm -hmm. So, and really making sure that they're the ones who are advocating as well and not someone else, because that's another huge pitfall I think we get into is that you have a lot of adults that are running around a kid advocating for them mm -hmm. or, you know, saying, oh, it looks like he needs a break, right? But we're not teaching him to say, this is how I feel. And when I feel this way, this is what happens, and this is what I need. Yeah, so, so. I, I identify when you're being overwhelmed and mm -hmm. then ask for that help. The other two things that I learned from research was that um, the two things, and this isn't specific to autism, that cause a person with a developmental disability to lose their job. Um, do you know what they are? Can you guess? The two things. And what are the two things, the two top reasons why someone with a developmental disability loses their job? Um, dealing with others? Yeah. Being inappropriate. Hmm. So sexually harassing someone. Sure. Unintentionally. Yeah. So that's one. And then the other one? Is, is it also related to social skills? It's hygiene. Hygiene. Yeah. Yes. So hygiene. I mean, especially if you work in food service and you like to yeah. pick your skin or... 
you don't smell good. Yeah. So those are the two top reasons. So those are other things that we work on as well, is making sure that our kids are aware, you know, of their hygiene and their appearance. And also we teach them sex ed classes. So we mm-hmm. teach them how to be safe. We teach them how to be aware. We teach them what's okay to say, what's not okay to say. We teach them, you know, that there's different levels of appropriate conversation based mm-hmm. on who your audience is and where you are. So Context. Yeah, it's it's always... Who are you talking to, where are you, and what are you talking about? Because if you and I were sitting in a bar and talking about something, uh-huh. we should not be having the same conversation when we're sitting in church. Right. Right? right. But that's something we have to teach a lot of our kids, you know, that mm-hmm. context. So, that's yeah. Generalizing those skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, just there's just a couple things that I consider to be pre-employment or... I mean, just really important for any any sort of job setting. Right. Mm-hmm. And how at the children's home do you help people find employment or develop the, those skill sets? Well, so <clears throat> our program works with kids that are anywhere from middle school up to transition age. So the youngest kid that we have this year is 13 and the oldest is 21. Um, and we start out by really working on just those social skills. And as an individual gets older... Um, or that as they develop skills, we have tiers of programs that <clears throat> just make sure we're teaching the appropriate skills. So we do it just like how I was talking about. So we have a class that is about self-awareness. And the self-awareness is what do you like? What do you not like? What are you good at? What are you not good at? Um, and that might be like, I like to be active. Mm-hmm. Or I like to sit. You know, I like to be inside. I like to be outside. So really getting kids to think about Right. Those different variables, just really basic level stuff. It's not what do you want to be when you grow up. It's what makes you tick, right? Then we teach self-regulation. We use mm-hmm. how to keep themselves at just right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we teach kids intentionally how to self-advocate in um, an articulate way and also a respectful way. And that's really important. And one of the ways that we do that is by involving them in their IEP process and having them start to write sections of it, start to edit sections of it. They have to be actively involved. They get um, they get rewarded for being a part of their IEP and, and actively engaging in the process. So that's one thing. So in, those are kind of basic level things that we do for all the kids. And then as they get older, so when they're upperclassmen, they get a campus job. So um, And there's change every year, but we have a computer recycling job, um, and they work about three hours once a week. Um, they've got, you know, we've got a child care job, so they go into a preschool that we have, um, on our campus and they set up activities and they, you know, do snack time and different things. There's a group that goes to, uh, Matthew 25 and they volunteer. There's a group that, um, handles all of our campus recycling. We have a group that is our yearbook committee. And then we have a group that is basically our facilities committee and they do inventory and they, you know, clean off door handles and, um, water fountains and things like that. So different job opportunities, and they have the they have the option to switch on a quarterly basis if they're just exploring. But we mm-hmm. have some kids that are very intentional in what they want to do, and they're allowed to stay in that job. So that's another way with our upperclassmen. And then um, we really focus on with that group um, job readiness skills, resume writing. Everybody has um, a profile in Ohio Means Jobs, um, and We work on independent living, we work on budgeting, we have um, a local bank. There we go. I almost named the bank, but I 
totally censored myself. We have a local bank that works with our program on <laughs> financial literacy and budgeting, and they'll actually give all the kids a budget, and then um, they give them bills, and they have to manage that. We also have a new event that we started this last year that's called Budget Boot Camp, and everyone is provided a job, and they have to go around the different tables, and they have to basically experience a simulated, you know, bill-paying lifestyle. So they've got to get, you know, a job, a paycheck, they have to secure housing, they have to figure out what transportation, and they are given options, and they have to work within their budget. So that's a really cool experience. And then as the kids get even older, that we have a transition program for 18 to 21-year-olds, and that, um, we use something called the Pays Lab. Have you heard of that? The yes. Lab? Yeah. yeah, the Practical Assessment Exploration System. It has 264 simulated activities, so um, in a nice supportive environment, we can assess across five different areas their likes and their dislikes and what, they lo- what they're good at, what they're not good at, and then we can take that information and then we apply it to real-world real situations. So the transition group goes out in the community at least three days a week, if not towards the end of the year. They're out there like four or five days of the week. So, and they'll work for an entire day at a different place. So we work at um, a farm. We work at a, um, a cabinetry maker. We work um, at just a, a variety of different things. We're not exactly where we want to be with all that yet, but we're only seven years old. So ideally, in the future, we're going to have um, businesses that match up with those five different areas, and we'll be able to really target what a kid wants to do instead of just giving them kind of vanilla work experience. We'll mm-hmm. be able to make it more of a customized Individualized, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Does that answer your question? It does. I went on for like, what, 20 minutes? No, not, not <laughs> almost. No, it was a great answer. Uh, so if, if someone wants to learn more about the children's home or, you know, how do they go about doing that? Uh, www.thechildrenshomecenti.org. So that's Centi is C-I-N-T as in Tom, I... Org. Or you can email us at ASD, as in Autism Spectrum Disorders, mm-hmm. ASD at thechildrenshomecenti.org. So, or you can call, old-fashioned, 513-272-2800, say <laughs> so you're interested in autism services. Did you want me to talk about Ready to Work, too? Yes. All right, so then we have the summer programs, right? So yeah. I just described the, the school year programs, but in the summer we have um, a summer program that runs the month of July, and that's for high school age students. And that really came out of, like, when I worked at Cincinnati Center for Autism, we would have parents call with teenagers all the time. They were looking for something not just recreational, but something really intentional for their teenager to do. So we created this program, and it's a job readiness program, and we assess across a variety of areas over the month of July, and then we um, basically write the section what used to be sections four and five, and now it's just going to be sections five of the IEP, and we write um, up all these assessments, we come up with goals, and suggested activities based on the assessment that we did over the summer. And then we have the Ready to Work program, which is for individuals who have accepted their diploma, and that is an actual 10-week internship in the summertime. It's a paid internship program, and um, with that program, we've been working with U.S. Bank, and they have hired three going on four of our interns for full-time jobs. That's great. It is. It's awesome. And are some of those interns still employed? All of them are. All of them are still employed. So our first intern was hired, I think, golly, Moses Michael, 
forgive me if I misquote, I think he was hired in the year 2014. Yeah. And uh, this past year they had him start training people. So he's been working full-time ever since. Um, and then the other, yeah, the other guys are, have been working full-time. And this is, this is, I feel like, what I feel like is so important about this is that there's a lot of times that individuals with disabilities have jobs. Right. But they're not fully employed. Yeah. They don't get benefits. And these guys get benefits. They're being, they're in a competitive position. They're being paid competitively. Like, it's not minimum wage. It's working in an operations center, they have the same responsibilities, and they're knocking it out of the park. They're doing really well. That's awesome. Well, it speaks a lot to what our focus was, and I know we're going to get into this, so I'm just going to go ahead, but our focus with that organization was not training them to work with this kid. It was really focusing on making training the whole entire department to understand autism and really developing their whole diversity and inclusion program. So instead of it being tailored to one individual, it is really focusing on the culture of this business and making sure that every employee understands how to support and work with a variety of different people. And I think that's key. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I always say it's not easy to find employment, but it's a lot easier than maintaining employment. Yep. So, like, what do you think have been some of the keys to helping your interns not only get be, be hired, but to continue to stay employed? Well, I mean, I remember when we first started this program and we started working with the Human Resources Department, just trying to figure out how we would even make this work. And when our first intern, Michael, got hired, he was offered a part-time position, and it quickly went to full-time. But that was one of the pieces is that we changed the way the interview process went. So their job coach joined them for the interview. We um, had the questions ahead of time and we could do some prepping. You know, for typically developing people, right, we can guess a lot of times what they're going to ask us or we can research what they're going to ask us, you know, and we will take that initiative and we'll, we'll be able to imagine the answers that they want. But a lot of times people on the autism spectrum struggle to do that, right? Yeah. They struggle to, number one, even think about, like, oh, I should research all these questions, and then tailoring the responses to be something that someone wants to hear yeah. rather than how they really feel, Yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Why am I being asked that question? Right. Not thinking about that, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we had a job coach that helped them. We practiced um, throughout the summer, um, that, um, the summer of the internship. We practiced throughout the summer with interviewing skills. We talked to them about how to dress, how to present what to expect, and then, you know, we had been training the bank staff as well about just how to understand autism and how to interact with people with autism, so it was a really successful experience, and that um, was a key in him getting hired, number one, and then when it came to him maintaining the job, we kept the doors of communication open after they stopped after the internship program stopped, right, so it was only every summer, mm -hmm. but throughout the school year, they would call us and they would text us. And if something came up, they knew that they could rely on us to provide support to him, not because we expected you know, them to pay a bill, but because we really wanted him to be successful. So right. that collaborative relationship also helped. And 
that, I mean, Michael really didn't need that much support. I mean, one of their major concerns was that he would come to work in the wintertime in flip-flops. <laughs> and we were like, is that going to impact his job? And they were like, no, we're just worried about his health. And we are like, he's fine. <laughs> you know, like, he's been doing this for years. You know, that's what he likes to wear. He wears shorts and flip-top, flip-flops in the wintertime. You know, that's just him. That's just him. So, um I mean, there weren't really major, major concerns and we've, and we've had other interns get hired and they, you know, know that they can reach out to us, but we have never stopped training them. We train them every single year and we have two trainings. We have a part one that trains all the direct staff mm -hmm. and that's really just the basics of autism. Um, and then the part two is for managers and supervisors and mentors. And that's designed to really understand how to support a person with autism, how to deal with very specific situations. We do some like little case studies and we talk about those situations and, and why the person with autism might be responding the way they are and how they can respond in the most supportive way. So doing that every single year, even with the same staff, a lot of times coming back every single year has really supported this just diverse and you know, inclusive environment that they've been trying to develop over the years. So I think that's the key. I think when you walk into a job site with a job coach and that person is just focused on you and making you fit in, mm -hmm. that's a completely different attitude than going to an employer and saying, it's not about them fitting in, it's about you accepting them, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's the, it's a mindset thing. Yeah. What is the feedback that you've gotten um, from U.S. Bank in terms of your trainings? I think they've liked it. I mean, <clears throat> like I said, we've had a lot of repeat staff, but... It's not even at this point, so this past year, this was like, I think the fifth time we've done it with them. We had a lot of the same staff, so we, we approached it a little bit different. We went over the, the same content and whatnot, but then they also had the experience of the past years working with specific individuals that they could bring up, you know, really pointed questions and say, what about this situation? And what about this? What if this happens? And we had the opportunity to talk to them and talk through it with them. And it, it develops, number one, a relationship of trust, right? that they can ask these questions and we're not judging them or thinking that they're, you know, um, you know, thick-headed or that they're resistant. It's that they're really curious and they, I mean, we work with some amazing people there that are just so open-minded and so supported, supportive. So, I mean, some of it's that and then them being able to ask us questions throughout as well. I think that's another key is that it's not a one-time training. We have job coaches there, but we also have a supervisor there and whenever there's a situation, they know all that they have to do is pick up the phone or shoot us an email and we're there to support. So having that that type of support system that isn't um, dependent on a bill, you know, like, yeah. so right now we haven't been using any sort of funding mechanism with this. Like, right. this has been a program that is funded by U.S. Bank, which is amazing, right? Is. So we have a lot of flexibility around that, but we're getting ready to move into accepting state funding so that we can create a sustainable program and generalize this to other businesses. Yeah. And then we're going to have to work with that model, right? So when you have to qualify for services and when, you know, someone has to be authorized to provide that level of support. So it'll be interesting to see what the next year kind of brings with that. But I do feel like just the fact that, um, you know, we've already established you know, there's relationships in the community and that level of communication and support in the community. I don't think that's going to stop just because we're, we're billing someone now, you know? Right. So yeah. I hope not. Yeah. So away from the children's home from 2013 to 2017, you were 
uh, and then you wore another hat as the facilitator for the Autism Society's adult group for those with Asperger's and high-functioning autism. Yeah, thanks so, to you, right? Well, <laughs> and I, then that was I, thanks to me. Yeah, yeah, we'll get we'll get to that later. We'll get we'll get to that later. Yeah, um, but like, what did you learn from the the adults in that group in terms of oh employment? God. What did I not learn? Right. Everything. I learned everything. Like the timing of me. So I started. Um, I started participating in that group in August of 2012. So yeah. when we knew that you were moving to Cleveland, we started overlapping, which was hilarious because one of the people were like, what is she doing here? And we're like, <laughs> nothing, because you hadn't announced yet. <laughs> you hadn't announced your, your resigning yeah. yet. <laughs> so um, the timing was perfect because I started working at the children's home in 2012. Yeah. I started um, overlapping the support group in 2012. And... I mean, it's really, I could talk about this all day long, but I mean, yeah, I mean, the experiences and the stories and the frustrations that people brought to that support group, and it just completely impacted the way that I designed programs for the school program at the children's home, for these high schoolers and these transition age youth. I wanted to make sure, and the adults, the, the individuals and the adults with autism support group, the individuals in that group, they knew what I did for a living. And I told them going in, I am going to use your stories and the information that you provide to me to make sure that we can change the outcome for these kids that I'm working with. Yeah. And they were in total support of that. You know, I mean, they just, they they knew exactly what my intention was and that it was somewhat self-serving, but not self-serving. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> Like, I'm going to use this information You were for there myself. to support them, but yeah. you were also there to learn from them. Exactly. That, you know, yeah. what I always say is I've learned a lot from other profes professionals, from going to to lectures, to conferences, from reading books. Oh, yeah. But the, But the group where I learned the most is from those with autism. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to, like, kind of think about some key points that I've learned. I mean, the biggest piece was the social piece. I mean, that's what most of the individuals, and I'm sure it was the same for you, but just yeah. like, just not feeling like they fit in, not feeling like they were understood. Isolated. Feeling isolated, feeling rejected, um, feeling bullied. And one of the things that, and they would, you know, a lot of individuals would tell their stories and I would kind of wear two hats. I would be looking at it from their perspective, but I would also be looking at it from my perspective as like an employer, sure. as a manager, as someone who's overseen people. And what I came to the conclusion of was that it didn't matter what my intention was as the boss person, as the employer person. If that's how that person felt, if they're feeling rejected or they're feeling bullied or they're feeling isolated, then that's how they feel. You know, mm -hmm. so what can you do to change how they feel instead of trying to get them not to feel that way? You know, yeah. like stop feeling that way. That's not what's happening <laughs> here. <laughs> Don't yeah. feel bullied. Nobody's bullying yeah. me, so stop it. Yeah. <laughs> That's super productive. Right. So instead, like really looking at the culture and whatnot. And and for me, you know, like working with a lot of the individuals I worked with in the support group, they didn't have the services that, you know, our kids have now. They didn't I mean a lot of them didn't have IEPs. A lot of them weren't diagnosed until later in life. So we you know, they were already kind of at a disadvantage because they were just learning about themselves later in life. So that yeah. was my big takeaway was 
how can I take the self-awareness that a lot of these individuals have had to work really hard to get to and make that start earlier. Right. So that was intentional. Like when we started self-awareness classes, it was because it was like, it's, you know, the individuals that came to the support group had developed this awareness over the years, but it took a long time because I really do feel like their parents were protecting them mm-hmm. for so long, right? Yeah. But that's exhausting. So it was about transferring that awareness and that ownership from their support system to the kids at an at an earlier age. So that was one thing, so that they could really become self-advocates and really um, feel like they owned their lives. So, and that's huge. That's huge in any setting, you know, not just employment. That's just huge in life. Yeah, you for know? all of us. For all of us, exactly. Um, so that was one thing. Um, and then, you know, just hearing different stories, um, different stories about... So people having meltdowns in the workplace, it goes back to, again, these classes that we're teaching. So self-regulation and self-advocacy. I mean, that's why we're teaching those classes, because I'm working with a guy who knows that he's going to have a meltdown, but he doesn't think that he should ask for a break because nobody else is asking for a break. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So he's scared to self-advocate because that sets him apart from other people. Right. So really teaching individuals those skills so that they are feeling more comfortable doing it. We talk about self-disclosure as well, so just disclosing the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So like, do you talk about having autism? And that's a conversation that we have with the kids that come to our school, and everyone feels differently about that. Sure. Even in the support group, everybody feels differently about that. But, you know, it's it's something to consider. and doing it proactively instead of reactively, you know, saying like, I have a diagnosis of autism and this how this is how it impacts me. Instead of the reason I didn't do that is because I have autism, you know. Right. So just it's again it's it's a attitudinal shift. Am I giving you what you want here? Yes, this are is great. Sure? <laughs> Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Bye. What are some other things like? I mean, think about like what did you learn? What did you learn from running? The support group in terms of, like, employment. So, I guess, I I mean, I learned a lot of things because it was really my first opportunity to work with adults. Mm -hmm. So, like, you always hear about, like, new to the diagnosis and you think of two-year-olds, three-year-olds, five-year-olds. But 30. Yeah, 30 new to the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, In in Cleveland, we had a, a client who was new to the diagnosis at 68. Yeah. So, yeah. Did, yeah. So that was really kind of like uh, just a shift in, in mindset, really, mm-hmm. of, of learning learning about that. And just probably a, a big takeaway in terms of employment was probably that so many of those that came to the group, they could, they, they'll, they'll get a job. They don't they'll, keep a job. They don't, they don't keep a job. They'll learn, they'll learn the job. And... And many times they'll do the job really well, but they'll get fired because of their interaction with others. Mm-hmm. You know, um, or they'll quit. Or they'll quit because they get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And then the advocacy that you, you talked about. So mm-hmm. I think those were kind of some big takeaways. And just, mm-hmm. yeah, and then just that group and I think also employment. So many of our adults um, have no, they, they don't have community. And yeah. coming to that group You're really, so isolated. yes, that that group I think really helped some of those people to develop community. Mm-hmm. And then, it, you, 
employment, I think, is a big piece of that because the, the number one place all of us as adults find in, find our friends is through employment. It is. It is. One of the things, so like when I look at the group, and this is all anecdotal, none of it is like data, but um, the individuals that have had the most long-term successful employment either work at an organization that has a, um, like a philosophy mm -hmm. of hiring people. Supportive environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like Kroger, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of individuals that work at Kroger, mm -hmm. but part-time jobs, you know, which that is related to disability and benefits and mm. it's a delicate balance, you know, how much you can work and also afford an apartment and things like that. So that's one thing. The other is that um, with some of the individuals, it's really been based on a specific manager. So, yeah. it, you know, mm -hmm. so, and they're able to work in this job as long as they have because they have someone who's advocating for them, yeah. you know, and looking out for them. So those have been kind of the two things that I've noticed as a takeaway for the people that have had the most supportive. Um, the least successful individuals are working in food service. A lot of bouncing around there, a lot of frustration. Um, it's a very fast-paced and social environment. Yeah, the speed issue is... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I, I love to steal this quote from Michael, who was our intern at Youth Bank. He, he had tried... To work in food service and he said they expect you it's like expecting someone to drive in two lanes of traffic at the same time mm. you have to work and you have to be social and <laughs> I can only do one at a time right you know and I thought that was a really great analogy um, and then the other one is manufacturing a warehouse job and it, it goes back to speed again yeah um, and it's also a really pretty social environment there's a lot of people a lot of people and a lot of turnover yeah. So that, and same with food service, there's a lot of turnover. So you're constantly having to adapt to new people. So I've noticed that those are not really super successful work environments. Yeah. Um, and that's a generalization. Like, I know people that have had success in those environments. So I don't want to overgeneralize and, like, lump all people with autism in this, like, this doesn't work for you. Right. It might. You know, like, there's a, there, every single person that I've ever met with autism is completely different, just like every single person in the world I've ever met is completely <laughs> different. So I'm not going to generalize, you know, all the Dougs of the world, you know, can only work in this field. There's only one Doug. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> oh, so those are kind of the, I mean, the, the broadest takeaways that I've had. I've heard, you know, there's been a lot of, of stories and um, a lot of stories about just frustration and failure, and that's another um, that's another really kind of dangerous road is when you have someone who is has had so many failures in employment because they just basically just start to expect anybody would right yeah. and just start to expect it not to work out and that changes your mindset that changes how you approach employment you deal with other people because it's all just temporary because you're going to get fired anyway, right? Yeah. So if that's how you feel about it, then that's really going to impact your overall performance and just your morale walking into the workplace. Yeah, So. for sure. So I think one of the big pieces about employment, which you've already touched on some, is advocating for yourself. Mm. And um, in 2016, you got the Governor's Council award uh, yeah. from people with disabilities advocacy award in the state of ohio that's right so 
maybe talk a little bit more about barriers to advocacy um, in employment for adults. Barriers to advocacy and employment for adults. That was really fancy. Yeah. Let me figure out how to respond to that. Um, you know, one of the things that when I started working with transition-aged youth, one of the things that um, I started realizing was that we were working our asses off. Bleep! We were working our butts off. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we were working our asses off to get these kids prepared for a world that wasn't prepared for them. So you can teach a kid to self-advocate all day long, but if someone's not listening, yeah, then, you know, and just like we're teaching them all these, these like just soft skills and hard skills related to work, but they're still different, you know? Right. They're still different. Yeah. And that was one of the things that, um, was one of my aha moments was that we were working so hard to get these kids prepared to knock on a door that was never going to open. Yeah. You know? So my feeling and my approach has been instead of only focusing on individuals with autism, we also need to focus on the community. We need to focus on the employers and we need to get them ready and willing to work with individuals of all disabilities. And I've gone to like I've been involved with a lot of different um, initiatives that are like diversity and inclusion initiatives mm -hmm. that are work-related. And what I've found is that um, a lot of times employers are more, more prepared to work with someone who has a physical disability, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether that be a missing limb or whether that be a wheelchair or um, a visual impairment or a hearing they can impairment. See it. Yeah, well, because they can see it, because we've already come up with these really kind of black and white modifications, but a social disability or a developmental disability can be more difficult. And with autism, it's a global developmental disability a lot of times, so there's motor issues. There might be, you know, developmental issues. There's definitely social issues. Like, there's a lot of things to consider and also to have to understand on the part of an employer. So... That's what I learned is that we need to focus a lot more energy on getting employers in the community, gyms, stores, you know, gas stations, just wherever an individual is going to go, we got to get the world ready to understand yeah. how to respond to people on the autism spectrum. So I think that's really like when it comes to um, helping individuals with autism to advocate, it's about making sure that we're educating people. So that when they advocate, yeah, they're listening. Yeah, it you shouldn't know? all be on the person with autism. God no. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There needs to be and meet somewhere in the middle. The other thing that I've learned recently about um, self advocacy, and this was like one of those like duh moments for for me, which I love having them. Like mm -hmm. I really do. Like I love it when I'm like, well, that was a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> I can still ask those too. Yeah. Um, but I went to go see John Elder Robeson. Mm -hmm speak in Cincinnati yeah. last year and John Elder Robeson for those of you that don't know is a is an author and an individual with Asperger's who didn't get diagnosed until I think his late 40s yeah and he um came out to speak and he was really talking about um disability advocacy and specifically autism advocacy 
and I raised my hand at the end when he was taking questions. And I said, you know, so I run this support group for individuals on the autism spectrum. And, you know, I've had access to hundreds of individuals over the last five years, like hundreds of individuals on the autism spectrum. And I've had a really, really hard time getting these people organized to want to advocate. Like, I feel like we have this amazing, you know, educated, articulate, just dynamic group of people that could really help us with this advocacy initiative. And I just need to know how to get them organized. And he said, you know, he said, not everybody's going to be an advocate. Just because you have autism doesn't make you an advocate. Right. And then he like started quoting numbers. I think he was like, you know, really 2% of people are really overall going to be the ones that are going to be advocates. And I don't know if he made that number up. I doubt mm. he did. Like he's probably done all sorts of research. Yeah. And I was like, right. Oh yeah. Like just because you have autism doesn't mean you should like get in a bus and go to Columbus and like <laughs> knock on doors, you know? Yeah. That's a really tough skill for anybody, you know? So that was one of my takeaways was that, um, I needed to be more focused in, in seeking out people that were comfortable and also passionate about yeah. being advocates. So, yeah. And that's just how it is. And that's in a workplace for anybody. I mean, if you, if you go to, you know, Kroger tomorrow, there's plenty of people that don't have autism that aren't advocating for themselves, yeah. you know? There's plenty of people that are just going to work in the same department and they're never going to question the job duties that they've yeah. been assigned. And they're never going to, you know, ask for a pay raise because that's just not how they're built, you know? Right. And yeah. people with autism are just people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the same kind of um, the same kind of challenges apply, you know? Yeah. Not everybody is going to be a self advocate. So yeah. yeah, I know for myself over the years, over the last twenty years that well, you could say that the uh, <laughs> be just developing self advocacy skills for myself is Oh yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean from where I, I went to twenty yeah. to where I am at forty is completely different and it's still a process. It is. It's still a process because it's it's never going to be the same process because you're always dealing with a different person in a different situation. How you self-advocate to one boss is not going to work with another boss. Nope. So, and that's a really challenging thing. I mean, if you, you know, if you understand what autism is, one of the characteristics is that perspective-taking can be a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're advocating, if you're really trying to get someone to get on your side or understand your perspective, then you have to try to understand their perspectives <laughs> in order to get them to understand yours. So yeah. like, so me as, you know, as a manager, as a colleague, as a person, when I interact with people and I'm trying to have a conversation or trying to inspire them or trying to get them to do their job effectively, I always approach it from what are you motivated by? Yeah. So if you're motivated by relationships, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And people having faith in you and people trusting you and people thinking that you do a good job, I'm not going to talk to you about money. Yeah. I'm not going right. to say, I'm going to give you a pay raise if you do all these things. I'm going to say, Doug, I need you to do these things because people are really going to benefit from this. Yeah. And that's what's going to speak to you. Right. But that takes some major, like, first of all, you have to observe the person you have to note the things that motivate them, and then you have to figure out how you're going to use those things in a, in a legitimate and sincere way yeah. 
to communicate to them to get them on board. And that is... It's a process. It's for like, anybody. Yeah, developing that relationship takes time. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, that's why self-advocacy can be really difficult because you have to kind of approach it from a perspective-taking place, right? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in, in the most, I would say, kind of formal, formal um, or more complicated situations. So... That was that was a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've we've been down much d- deeper rabbit holes than, than, than that, certainly. Uh, so, as we're ending um, with this, so when I decided to start this podcast, I said to myself, "Amanda is going to be the first uh, person that that I interview." All right. And if not, I'm not going to do the podcast. Well, we're doing it. We're doing it. So that means you're doing the podcast. We're doing the podcast. And, and the reason I feel that way is because if I never would have... Uh, my first experience working with, with teens was with you because of you. Oh, my gosh. And my first... Can you tell ex- some stories about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're not going to tell Uh-oh. that. Those will probably be... At, well, we can tell some wonderful stories, and yeah. then others we would clearly not be allowed to tell. Um, but um, so my, my first experience working with teens was because of you, and my first experience working with adults was because of, of you as well, because you were the one that um, suggested me for the... Because uh, right, I threw your name in the hat. The adult, the adult group uh, for the Autism Society of Cincinnati. So, um, and so if it wasn't for you, who knows, maybe... You know, autism personal coach, you know, might not have uh, been in existence. That's really sweet. So. Well, I appreciate that, Doug. I am happy that I have a kindred spirit. (laughs) Because not a lot of people want to work with young adults and adults, you know. Everybody seems to want to work with young kids. Because, and I get it. Like, we both worked with young kids. It feels like you can make the most impact, right? You're like, I, if I get this, you know, from the start, like, we can really make some changes. But it's been, it's been an amazing experience working with young adults yeah. and adults, you know? Oh, yeah. So, been, yeah. Kids, were, kids were great, and that the teens and adults even learned more from. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, I, I mean, I know that you have this experience, and you, you have a little bit of this opportunity just because you're married to someone who works with younger people. But the things that you learn from individuals when they're older, and it doesn't have to be a verbal individual. Like, you can learn from their experience. You can learn from, you know, how they have gained or not gained from all the interventions over the years. And then go back to those people that are working in early intervention and with school-age kids and say, this is what I've learned. This is what these individuals have told me or taught me that you need to know. You need to know this now because you could change their outcome in a much more powerful way. Yeah, because transition planning doesn't start at 16. It starts at 2 or 3. Right. Well, <laughs> oh. yeah, legally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> legally, it starts yeah. at 14. But, yeah. yeah, it absolutely should start as soon as yeah. you have a kid that is identified who's going to have some delays, you know, that life is going to be a little bit harder for them. Mm-hmm. In you, yeah. then you need to start coming up with how can I make this the most successful experience for all of us, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, thanks, Amanda, for being on the podcast today. Oh my gosh, was that it? That is it. We did it. Thanks, Doug. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. So often teens and adults with autism struggle with anxiety and as a result don't have success in their lives. Autism Personal Coach is a unique service in that we help people with autism by working on meaningful individualized goals in the settings in which they'll be used so their anxiety is greatly reduced and as a result they can become more independent and successful. To get an Autism Personal Coach for a loved one or yourself, it is very easy. All you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call us at 216 336-5889 and request a coach today. Join us next week as we will have a discussion with Andrew November of Liner Legal about the importance of social security benefits. Talk to you then.